God, what a joy, what an honor it is to serve you in, in little ways, to represent your grace, your kindness, your mercy to this world. And I pray that we would do that faithfully, uh, whether it's through cloudy days or days where the sun is shining brightly in our hearts. Lord, make us faithful to be your people who represent you well. Um, and we thank you that we get to do that joyfully, not as an obligation, but in response to all of the grace that you've lavished upon us, all of your goodness, all of your provision, your kindness. Lord, we could be here for hours pouring out our hearts in adoration and praise and thanksgiving for your faithfulness. Uh, but we worship you for those things. And we thank you for the way that that's displayed just in your word, that you are not a God who is ultimately mysterious to us, but you have chosen to make yourself clear, to reveal yourself through your word and through your son, Jesus. And I pray that as we look at your word now this morning, uh, that you would open our eyes to who you are, that we would come to know you a little bit more, that we would be encouraged to pursue you and follow you. Lord, where there's sin, convict us and uh, give us grace and forgiveness. Wash over us with those things, but bless us. Bless us through this time, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, I would love for you to be in uh, Luke chapter 12 with me. I'm going to start in verse 13, and so you can follow along through these couple of verses with me. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Look, I absolutely love God's word. It's precious to me. I think if you come to our church, you'll find that that's true. I, I think our church is a church that really does love God's word. But I, I got to be honest today, I'm, I'm a little weary of teaching Luke 11 and 12. Uh, for months now, we've been in these chapters, and if you've been here pretty regularly, you've seen kind of this truth that these chapters are filled with some pretty harsh words. Uh, and, and as kind as Jesus is, as gentle as Jesus is, as gracious as he is, he spends a fair amount of time condemning hypocrisy and destroying idols and rebuking sin. I mean, Jesus is not soft in those areas. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm weary of those subjects, actually. It's hard to spend two straight months talking on these kinds of topics. But you need to understand that if Scripture is really our guide, and if it's really God's Word, and if it's really our authority, then we have to submit ourselves to all of it, all of it. Not just the parts that we like, or not just the parts that are easily compatible with our lives. And so we press on. We don't 
skip Luke 12 because we're tired of the subject. We press on to hear everything that God has to say to us, and we try to do that with discernment and introspection, searching our hearts, trying to understand what the Spirit of God is saying through the Word of God. So here we find ourselves then in Luke chapter 12 with the parable of the rich fool, which I admit, this, this is another hard text. And before I really dive into this, I want to make it clear that there's nobody in this room to whom this message does not apply. I think we could easily come to this text and we could think that this is only a message for certain people, right? The wealthy people, the millionaires, the billionaires, the people who are not financially like us. But I want you to understand that everyone in here needs to hear these words from Jesus because I think these are particularly pointed words that address the American way of life. It's very important you understand Jesus has words for you here in Luke 12 because we live in a culture that is driven by possessions and covetousness, and I would even go so far as to say greed. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're all guilty of those sins here in this room, but the kind of thinking that Jesus is addressing is thinking that is nearly inescapable as Americans. And if you've been anywhere else in the world, I mean, you know how wealthy you are. You know how blessed you are comparatively to most people who are living on this planet. And I want you to understand, in fact, if every American tonight were to read this passage of Scripture and decide, I'm going to live by this, I'm going to reorient my life around this truth, do you understand that the American economy probably collapse within a matter of months? Truly. And so there's a challenge in this text for all of us in the room. So I ask you, just keep your heart open to what the Holy Spirit might have to say to you through God's word this morning. And I pray that through that, he'll lead you deeper into grace and deeper into his will for your life. So I want us to go through this bit by bit. Let's start in verses 13 through 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Okay, in Israel, maybe you know this, the oldest son would end up getting the lion's share of the family inheritance. And then what was left would be split between the younger brothers. And so we can presume that this man just had one older brother who's going to end up getting the majority share of the family inheritance, leaving this man with only the little bit that's left. And so he cries out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, act as a judge for me. Intervene. Make my brother split the inheritance with me. 50-50. Do something that's more equitable. Wouldn't that be more fair? And I think immediately we see two things here. First, this man, I believe, has an unhealthy attachment to stuff. He's not content with what he has. He feels this need to grasp for more, even, even at the risk of alienating his own flesh and blood, his brother. And in the context of the moment, notice this. Jesus has just finished teaching about the importance of standing with Jesus before men, even if that gets hard. Do you remember that from last week? The importance of being associated with Jesus no matter the difficulty. Even as Jesus finishes these words, this greedy guy decides to cry out and intervene here. He must not have been paying attention because he thinks that this is an appropriate place to bring this grievance before Jesus. 
his interruption, I think it feels a little bit like maybe talking about fantasy football at like a, a memorial service, right? A funeral. It's just not appropriate timing maybe, right? And I think it's pretty clear he wasn't really listening. Even as Jesus is teaching, his heart is thinking about money, not the trials of following after Christ. And so I think there's an important question for us here, a powerful question for self-reflection. And it would be this. I just lay this at your feet. Are we ever so caught up in our stuff that we fail to listen to Jesus? Do our gadgets, do our possessions, do our various forms of entertainment, Hulu and Netflix and iTunes, and all the nice things that we own, do they keep us from paying attention to the Word of God? Does our focus on stuff prevent us from hearing Jesus? Now, I think the second thing that we see in these verses, I think it might be the most important thing in the entire section of Scripture. Turning a corner here, Jesus responds and he asks this man, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? The man is actually well within his rights to ask Jesus to judge between him and his brother. In this time, the people who were the experts in God's word, the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, they actually did act as arbitrators between people in their personal disputes. They helped people apply God's word to interpersonal issues. But the response that Jesus gives this man shows us that the primary or ultimate purpose that Jesus came was not for this. And I think it's really important that we see this here, okay? Did Jesus come and live among humanity so that we could establish better laws? Is that why he came? Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth between people who couldn't get along very well? Did Jesus live and teach and die so that we could just all coexist here on planet earth better? Is Jesus' primary role as a mediator or arbitrator between men in their personal disputes? I think he may have accomplished some of these things, and that's good, but were they primary to his mission? The answer to that, I think, is no, absolutely not. And I think that's why this is the key to the whole passage here. Jesus did not come first and foremost to mediate between man and man. Jesus came to mediate between man and God. The problem with the world is not that we're out of sorts with one another. The problem is not that we have interpersonal conflict with each other, although that is an issue. The fundamental problem with humanity is that we are out of sorts with God. Even if the UN could solve all of the interpersonal problems, it would not actually correct the problem. And if Jesus were to act as an arbitrator or a mediator between this man and his brother, think about this. Would the man really actually be any better off? No, right? He would have a little bit more money, but his primary problem is not that he doesn't have enough money. His problem is that he is spiritually bankrupt before God. And he needs Jesus to stand in the gap of separation between man and God, not between him and his brother. And so your biggest problem, my biggest problem, do you realize this? Is that we have conflict with God. The Bible calls that sin. But Jesus, he came to mediate that problem. He came to take our sin, to forgive us, to give us grace through the cross so that we could be made, with right, or made right with God. 
so that we could be reconciled to our heavenly Father through the grace of Christ in what he did on the cross. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward because we're going to see a man here in this parable who has everything except reconciliation with God, and he ends up coming to a tragic end. So as Jesus continues, he's going to give us a principle and then a parable that's going to speak to this conflict with God. Okay, verse 15, we find the principle. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Wow. I mean, really, is there a principle that is more at odds with the American worldview? Could Jesus say anything that is more antithetical to the American way of life? I mean, think about this for a second. Since you were a little kid, I I think I remember hearing at some point just how many advertisements we actually see in a day, and it would blow your mind. It's like in the thousands. Since you were a little kid, advertising messages have been drilling into your head the idea that stuff will make you happy. Our leading economists, what do they call you in their articles they write for the newspapers? Consumers. That's all you are. Just consume. As if the only purpose of your existence is to buy stuff. The American dream, it's to own a house, and I think that's a wonderful, good thing. But we think about this. We spend 30 years of our lives as indentured servants to the bank, paying back a loan, and we end up paying three or four times what the house is actually worth so that we can own a home. And I could go down the street here to Aaron's. Maybe you've shopped there. It's an appliance store. I could buy all kinds of new, expensive, very nice electronic stuff. And honestly, I don't even have to be able to afford it. They don't run a credit check. I just buy it on credit, and then I spend the next five years paying it off, right? I mean, look at this. I grabbed my mail yesterday, right? I can get a new truck. It's only $10,000, this one is great. This is, this is for pastors, and it's from the Trimedia Marketing Services, right? So I, I can help you feel more consumeristic about church. Great. Another one, uh, back to church Sunday, I can buy banners that I can put around town to help people desire to go back. Like, I can market my church to more consumers, right? This one was for furniture from the dump, and it looks very nice. And I actually opened this one, right? Because I was like, well, I'll take a look at that one. <laughs> this is another one that sucks me in every time. It's, it's the Christian Book Dispute or Distributors catalog, right? I, I can't get away from this one. And I mean, even, even the Christians in America are subject to this, right? And this is not a function of being rich or poor. You need to understand that. The American way of life is to acquire an abundance of possessions because our society sincerely believes that possessions make you happy. And Jesus fundamentally disagrees. Fundamentally. Now, I do want you to notice what Jesus is not saying because I think that this is important. He does not say we should not own things. You cannot find that anywhere in the New Testament. This is not an absolute all-condemning position on owning possessions. That's not the point. He does not say that it's wrong to work hard and to use the money that you make in working to acquire possessions. That's not what he says. He does not say that it is immoral to be wealthy or it is a sin to own stuff. That's not what he says. 
He says two things here. First, he says, be on your guard against covetousness. No matter where you are on the spectrum from poor to rich, you can be greedy. And greed is grasping for what we do not have. It is coveting more and more. It's desiring what others have and wishing we had it. And rich or poor, every person needs to guard their heart against covetousness. Here's why. Because covetousness breeds discontentment and idolatry. And the second thing that Jesus says is that life is not found in the abundance of possessions. Most people believe that they would be happy, that they would actually be fulfilled and have a fuller life if they could just have a little bit more, a little bit more money, a little bit bigger house, a little nicer car, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can go all the way up to, to um, Berkshire Hathaway. What's his name again? What is it? Thank you, Warren Buffett. Why does the dude keep working like what, do you really need another billion dollars? You can go all the way to the very top of the earning chart, and you can find that even there, people are discontent. Even there, they believe, if I just had a little bit more, then they would know. Then I would know what it means to have a full life. And the problem is that according to the teachings of Jesus in Scripture, fullness of life comes from one place, from Christ. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is the source of life. And then in John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. And so there's no substitute for Christ to make a person fully alive or fulfilled or full. And so, of course, Jesus is going to teach us here, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions because fullness of life True life, satisfying life, it's only found in Christ. And material possessions will never come close to satisfying my eternal soul. Only Jesus can accomplish that. I mean, have you had that experience where you buy this thing and you think, man, this is going to make me happy. And like five minutes later, you're like, nah, on to the next thing. Maybe it lasts you a couple of days, right? We know this and yet we still fall for this lie. Okay, with the principle laid out, then Jesus tells us a very sad story about a man who thought that he could be happy with more stuff, a man who didn't understand that his biggest problem in life is his broken relationship with God. Here's the parable, verses 16 through 20. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have laid up ample goods for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The number of times that this man refers to himself in three sentences, is staggering. Three sentences and the words I or my are used 11 times. And this man is very pleased with himself for all that he has accomplished. And the irony here is, who is responsible for the production of agriculture? I mean, who makes crops grow? Did this man make the rain come? 
Did this man cause the seeds to germinate in the soil? Did this man cause the soil to have the nutrients that could be fruitful? And the answer, of course, to all of those questions is no, absolutely not. It was God who has done all of these things. And so we tend to think that we're responsible for our own fate. This is the American way, right? I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm a master of my own destiny. But in fact, it's not true. And I'm not trying to be fatalistic by suggesting that you don't have any responsibility for your life. You absolutely do. That is also true from Scripture. You have a great burden of responsibility, and you have this wonderful gift of freedom to choose many things in your life. But it is God who provides the success. It is God who gives us what we need. He sustains creation, and he makes mankind profit from it by his kindness. And this guy, he's a smart guy. Notice, he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Why? Not just build more. Why not build more? Well, the reason is by tearing down his barns, he can maximize the space. If he builds more barns, then he uses up his land and he can't grow crops on that land. So he tears down his barns and builds larger ones. He's a very smart man. But he goes too far to think that he's the one who is responsible for the great harvest that he has reaped. He has left God completely out of the equation. But notice, even though he's smart, he's not an ethical man. In two ways, this guy violates the Old Testament law. First, the Jewish law required that those with fields leave a portion of their fields for the poor. You were not supposed to reap all the way to the edges. You were to leave the edges and what fell to the ground for the poor. Leviticus 23.22 talks about this command. And second, in Deuteronomy 26, we find that this man, he should have taken the first fruits of his crops to the temple to sacrifice and offer to God. An offering of thanks for God's constant provision and his kindness. An effort to honor God for what he has done. But look at verse 18. Look closely what it says. This man says, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store what? All of my grain and my goods. And I'm convinced that this word all implies that this man has neglected his responsibility to the poor and neglected his responsibility to God. He has not left any grain around the edges of his fields, nor has he taken the first fruits of his crop to give glory to God for the produce. And these are grave mistakes, I think, that heighten the self-referential materialism of this man. But I think he makes one more mistake, and this is the biggest one. Verse 19, he says this, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This man here violates Jesus' principle. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your soul is immaterial. It is the deepest essence of who you are, and yet this rich fool thinks that he can satisfy his soul with material things. This man is so foolish that he actually believes that his selfish acquisition of stuff will make him content in his innermost being. Again, have you ever tried that? I mean, you know what that feeling is like. You're empty shortly thereafter. 
And he doesn't end up content in his soul, but even worse than that, none of the things that he has acquired can overcome his ultimate obstacle. All the grain in the world, all the possessions on the planet, all of the material blessings known to man cannot alter the fact that this man, his life, will come to an end. And when he dies, his trinkets, his stuff, his wealth, his possessions, they mean nothing. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Did you know that this is the only parable that Jesus tells where God actually speaks? And his words are severe, incredibly severe. Jesus says that if we call our brother a fool, we're actually in danger of hell for that kind of language. And yet God calls this man a fool. It is an incredibly serious accusation that God levels against this man. But let's consider for a second what the Bible says about the fool. Maybe you know, Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And here's where this man truly goes wrong. God regards this man as a fool for living his life as if he was not accountable to anyone. Go back to Jesus and his primary purpose for coming. Do you remember? Maybe not. The purpose of Jesus is not primarily to act as an arbitrator between man and man, a mediator between men. Jesus has come to mediate the broken relationship between us and God. Our sin has made us like fools. By nature, we live as if there is no God, as if we're not accountable to anyone for our actions. And here, Jesus tells us about a man who has everything, And yet in the end, he has nothing because he's a fool. He denies God. He lives as if only the material matters. He lives as if life is found in possessions. He lives as if he is his own God. And in the end, all of his stuff can do nothing to fix the broken relationship between him and God, his deepest, most desperate need. His material possessions, they do not appease God's wrath for his sin. God is not impressed. And this man ends up judged for his rejection of God. He's exposed, a rich fool, a man who has everything and nothing, who loses everything in the end for living his life as if there is no God. Now, Jesus does not leave this parable open to interpretation. Sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, he he doesn't explain it. He leaves us to wrestle with it. But other times, like this time, Jesus flat out tells us, here's exactly what this means. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Everyone who lives a similarly foolish life without regard for God will come to the same tragic end. The pursuit of material acquisition without giving honor to God is a meaningless pursuit. And those who engage in it will be profoundly disappointed in the end. Okay, there's two ways we can understand this verse. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Listen, the moralist, the Pharisee, will think that this is a relationship of mutual exchange. Like a marketplace. I come along, I see God at a table, he's selling his wares 
salvation, grace. And I give him some of my time. I give him some of my money, some of my attention. I give him good morals and good behavior. And like a marketplace, in exchange for these things, God says, I'll give you salvation. I'm appeased by the price that you're willing to pay. Here's salvation. That's what the moralist thinks. These people think that being rich towards God means that they can buy him off with good works or a little bit of money or some church attendance or whatever it is. There's a whole myriad of thoughts out there. We become Christians through the exchange of goods with God. That's what the moralist says. Some of you are shaking your head. That's not what Jesus means, not at all. And the person who thinks this way has revealed the true motivation of their heart. Their goal is not to get God. Their goal is to get God out of the way so that they can get more stuff from God. God is an obstacle to their happiness, not the object of their happiness. And as an obstacle then, he's got to be overcome. He's got to be shifted aside. So we toss him some scraps from our lives. We hope those things will keep him busy for a little while, distracted long enough for us to go over here and get some more material pleasures out of life. Do you see that? And this is falling so far short of what it means to be rich towards God. It's actually using God for our own ends. Notice in verse 20 what God says. Fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The debt that we owe God is actually our very soul. It belongs to him. It is his by right. And so to be rich towards God is to give him our very heart and soul. It is to surrender our entire being to him. Because you can actually give God your money without giving him your heart. But if you give God your heart, then ultimately you don't really care what he decides to do with your money. Take it or leave it. To be rich towards God, then, is to surrender to God all that belongs to God, which is more than our money, it's more than our time, it's more than our possessions. It is our very heart and soul. It belongs to him. And Jesus has, in fact, made this possible by becoming our mediator between us and God, repairing the broken relationship between man and God so that we can know God, so that we can honor him, so that we can live for his glory and not our own pursuits. Okay, now, I'm coming to an end here, but I, I just need to correct a possible misunderstanding because I think it could be easy. If, if I droned on too long and you only caught certain parts of this, I think it could be easy to leave church after a message like this and think that what I said was, God wants more of your money. It could be easy to leave church after a message like this and think that all I said is that greed is bad and you shouldn't do that and you need to be more generous. Or maybe you leave thinking, man, Jesus just wants me to be broke and poor and I shouldn't own anything. I should go home and sell all my stuff. And that's not at all what I'm saying, okay? So give me one last chance to try and get the message clear and right. I don't think that's what Luke 12 means here. The point is far greater. It's far more reaching. It's far more important than that. The point is this. Everything belongs to God. Everything. Your money is his. Your children are his. 
Your career trajectory is his. Your home is his. The abundance of all of your possessions are his. Your successes are his. And far beyond all of that, your very life, your very soul, your very heart is his. Everything is his. And he is worthy to receive it all from us because of everything that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And being rich towards God, it's not a burdensome duty that you're required to do. It is a joyful privilege that flows out of a heart that has been wrecked by his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness. I mean, I think about this. What could I possibly give back to God to say thank you for everything that he has done for me in redeeming my life from the pit? Even the offering of my life, it seems far too small in response. And Jesus is worthy of my very soul because he solved my fundamental problem. He lived and died and rose again to be a mediator between me and God, to reconcile what I could not do on my own. He gave his life as an acceptable sacrifice for my sin so that I don't have to be a fool any longer, living as if there is no God so that I am now made capable of being rich towards God by giving him my very heart, my life, my soul. And so God can have everything I own. He can have it all because ultimately what I really want as a Christian is just more of God. And I would give up everything to have some of that. I want to close with a prayer that David prayed. It's found in 1 Chronicles. And what I want you to do is I want you to just close your eyes And I actually want you to put your hands out on your knees as you're sitting there with your palms up. This is a physical position of surrender. It represents your willingness to give up, to surrender, to come humbly before God with your hands open in offering everything to him. And so if you're willing to do that, then I encourage you, put your hands, palms up on your knees as a sign of your willingness to let God have your possessions, but not only your possessions, much more importantly, your heart. And just sit and silently echo this prayer with me in your heart. I invite you to just pray it along with me quietly in your heart. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. 
For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Lord God, what more can we say? Have all of us, we pray. Lord, let us see past our material possessions, our money, our things. These are, these are great gifts from you. These are wonderful things to celebrate and give thanks for and to praise you for. But Lord, let us see past these things to the greater truth, the greater reality, that what you desire is our hearts, that what you desire is us. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us committed to pursuing you in our hearts so that the things that we have, the gifts that you give, become insignificant in our eyes compared to having more of you. Lord, would you keep us in these truths? Would you direct our hearts towards you, we pray. Amen.